Hi, I'm Dr. Avanti Kumar Singh. In over 20 years of practicing both Western medicine and Eastern healing traditions, the most important thing that I've learned is that healing is a journey we take together. So on this podcast, I'll be demystifying Ayurveda and other integrated medicine, showing how these simple ancient practices are the keys to unlocking a healthy modern life. We are all healing catalysts because healing starts within. It starts with you and it starts right now. This is a Soulfire production. Episode number 103. Hey everyone, it's your friend Avanti, and I am so glad that you're here with me for another episode of the Healing Catalyst podcast. You know, I have been in deep reflection for the past few weeks, not just because I recently finished treatment for breast cancer, and not only because it's October and it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month here in the United States, and not only because the intention for the podcast this month in October is cancer and our health, but also because I've been doing a lot of research on cancer and the statistics for my second book, which is about the Ayurvedic perspective of longevity, which I'll be turning in in just a few weeks to my publisher. And these statistics on cancer, they have me thinking deeply about what health and healing are, what illness and disease are, and what longevity really means. Because the statistics are alarming. In the United States alone, one in two or 50% of men and one in three women will be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime. Take that in. 50% of men, one in three women will get cancer in their lifetime. And what's even more alarming is that one in eight women in the United States will have breast cancer in their lifetime. And in 2020, which is the most recent data, 2.3 million women were diagnosed with breast cancer worldwide, making it the fifth leading cause of death in women. Now, I know these are really, really grim statistics and pretty upsetting and depressing. And what they really tell me is that every single one of us, either you or me, well, I've already been diagnosed with cancer, or a family member or a friend or someone you work with or go to school with, or someone you just know in life will be touched by a cancer diagnosis, which means that the episodes that I've shared this past month on the podcast, and especially today's episode, are really important. Episodes that I hope that you'll share with your family and your friends and really anyone in your life because they need to have this information. These alarming statistics are also the reason that I am so incredibly grateful for my guest today, Dr. Nasha Winters. Dr. Nasha is a naturopathic physician, the leading integrative oncologist in the United States and likely in the world, the best selling author of The Metabolic Approach to Cancer and an authority in integrative cancer care and research, consulting with physicians all over the world. She has educated hundreds of professionals in the clinical use of mistletoe and has created robust educational programs for both healthcare institutions and the public on incorporating vetted, evidence-based integrative therapies in cancer care to enhance outcomes. Dr. Winters is currently focused on opening a comprehensive metabolic 
Oncology Hospital and Research Institute in the United States, where the best standard of care medical interventions and the most advanced integrative therapies will be offered. In addition, Dr. Nasha just launched a new podcast a few weeks ago called Metabolic Matters. In our conversation, Dr. Nasha shares her own cancer healing journey and how it led her to the work and research that she does today in integrative oncology. We also discuss where she thinks the Western medical approach to oncology misses the mark and why her metabolic approach, which takes into account what she calls the terrain 10, is the integrated approach that we must move to in cancer treatment and care. Dr. Nisha also shares the most promising new integrative cancer treatments that are coming, and you don't want to miss that, and also gives us some tips on what to do if we or someone we know or love is diagnosed with cancer. You know, I was introduced to Dr. Nisha's work by a friend earlier this year when my body was first diagnosed with breast cancer. And I immediately got her book, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer, and read it cover to cover in about a day. And since then, I have followed her work closely. And I also did many of the things that she suggested in her book during my cancer treatment. So when I was thinking about guests for this month, during the month of October, when we would be discussing cancer and our health, I knew that I had to get Dr. Nisha on the podcast. And just to tell you how amazing she is, because I know she gets so many emails and DMs on Instagram. She responded to me within a few hours and said that she would absolutely, yes, be on the podcast. Her response is a testament not only to her commitment to the work she does, but more importantly, to her mission of sharing this information with as many people as possible. I have enormous respect for her and am so grateful to her for the important work that she's doing in the world. I am so very honored to share with you my conversation with Dr. Nasha Winters on the metabolic approach to cancer treatment as we explore cancer and our health. Well, hello, Dr. Nasha. I am so incredibly honored to have you on my podcast. I know you are such a busy, busy physician, busy human being doing so many amazing things. And I'm just so grateful that you're here on the podcast. So thank you so much for doing this with me today. Oh my gosh, Avanti, and the timing. I just am super excited to be joining you at the, the end of one part of your journey and hopefully a conversation today, the beginning of a whole nother adventure, um, one that's probably a little bit more fun yes. than what you've come through. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you know, in October, we're going to be talking about cancer and our health, given what I've just been through. And I thought I need to get some of the best integrative oncologists on this podcast, because I think most people don't even know that there is such a thing as integrative oncology. And for, you know, the, the listeners, and you heard my intro already, Dr. Nisha is probably one of the leading integrative oncologists in this country, in the world. She's doing research. She has the most amazing programs for not just patients, but also for physicians. We'll get to all of that. Uh, and I actually got her book and I'm holding it up. You can't see it if you're not watching this on you know, video, um, the metabolic approach to cancer and actually was, was recommended to me by a friend. I actually didn't know about you, Dr. Nasha. I already had an integrative oncologist, Dr. Shelly Smeckens, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago, but then another friend introduced me to your work and I started following you all through my journey. 
and I reached out and you were so gracious to be on the podcast. So I am like so excited to have you because I read so much of your work and I, I follow so many things that you suggested as well. So this is personal for me as well. So thank you. <laughs> I got chills. Thank you. And my, isn't it really just personal for all of us? Yes. I mean, you know, coming in on this conversation, I mean, so many of the doctors who flocked to me for training, they themselves have had, you know, met, met with a diagnosis of cancer or a near and dear loved one, even those who had been in the conventional, you know, oncology environment, they didn't even know until they were met with this diagnosis or someone close to them that there was other opportunities to bring in a, a more holistic, integrative approach. And so I'm very excited about having this conversation with you and your listeners. And I'm really honored that I got to go along your journey, even if it was through the book. I'm excited to, to be with you now on the other side of the ringing of the bell. So yes. thank you. Oh, well, thank you. So, you know, speaking of personal journeys, let's start there because you are a really interesting person and you've shared widely in your work that you have a very personal journey with cancer as well. And that sort of has led you down this path. Can you share a little bit about that and how it sort of developed into the work that you do now and sort of the perspective you have? That would be great if we should start there. Absolutely. So, you know, I think, I don't know, anyone in my field, probably even just the field of conventional oncology or alternative or integrative oncology, we likely didn't land here because we're like, that just seems like a cool job. I mean, <laughs> I wish it was the case. It's like, there's, there's a, there's a pain to purpose usually behind someone entering into this field. And I'm no different than that. And so to give a little clear, a little context to my history, kind of came into this world in difficult circumstances of my own health issues, even from birth, likely before that, just knowing some of the circumstances around my mom's emotional state in conception and carrying me to term, as well as in 1971, it was not apropos to do breastfeeding. So my first six months of life was just like, they just tried one different formula after another, because God forbid we actually give me the boob. So instead they really worked with trying every formula and I landed on a, a soy formula. By the time I was like a toddler, I was diagnosed with IBS. I was put on like what's equivalent to gas X pills and the baby. So my poor microbiome just, oh, she just had a really rough start. So fast forward by the time I was nine, I was on the birth control pill because it started bleeding. Now, and this is early, you know, this is like early eighties for crying out loud, you know, like end of the seventies, early eighties, this wasn't happening at that time, you know, to kiddos. And, but it was for me, you know, I started menstruating in third grade and had all kinds of issues diagnosed with endometriosis. By the time I was 11, they amped up my birth control pills even more because they were hoping that would treat my polycystic ovarian syndrome and just the layering effect of the digestive issues, the medications, the hormone imbalances, you just layered. So I'm, I'm, I guess I just want you to hear that. My mom's, my pediatrician told my mom that me pooping once a month was normal just because it was my normal. And so they're like, well, this is just her pattern. That's normal. Hopefully your listeners understand that is never normal for anybody in any circumstances, right? Just because it was my pattern does not mean it was normal. But that the point is, is by the time I was 19, I had a collection of diagnoses. I had a collection of pharmaceuticals on board. I came from extremely toxic, stressful, traumatic, bringing environment, poverty, you name it. Pretty much every deck was, you know, card was deck, you know, was like, what's against me? in all the different things. And so I, by the time I was actually diagnosed, I was 19, moving into my sophomore year of college, been in and out of the ER all summer. 
things getting worse and worse. And everyone just thought it was just a continuation of my IBS. Or at that time, I also had RA and as well as PCOS. And then they learned about Hashimoto's and endometriosis and everything they thought was just more of the same. So by the time my roommate rushed me to the hospital, because I was basically unconscious and couldn't move and the pain was so exacerbating, my they had a different doctor on shift that night who happened to decide to actually do a more thorough workup, get some imaging, get some better labs and do a physical exam. But he knew by looking at me one step that I had to be in trouble. And it was found at that time on the examination that he found a mass on my right ovary through an MRI. There were lesions in my liver. There were peritoneal implants. There was a lot of suspicious involvement in my lymph nodes. On palpitation, he could feel these things. He could feel the tumor through my abdomen. I was severely cachectic massive fluid buildup around my abdomen. I had a bowel blockage. It was just like the organ failure. I was in total organ failure. I was in trouble to put it mildly. And that's when they gave me the, we suspect you have cancer. All of your markers say so. We suspect it's ovarian of origin. And it will still be in a few more weeks before I had the official diagnosis. That official diagnosis, by the way, landed on October 21st, 1991. In that time of the hospital and being having drain, things pulled and out of my body between blood and ascites fluid, the whole bit, I was told that even with treatment, I had three months, likely around three months to live. Now, as a doctor looking back, I was at the end stage of everything. I am surprised I had three weeks left in me at that point because things were in such a decompensated state. What happened for me and your listeners to have some context as well is in the years leading up to that, because of what I alluded to and some of the trauma experiences, I didn't want to live. I had no will to live. In fact, I tried to take my life on more than one occasion and almost succeeded on one of those occasions. And so for me, I had this one flash of, wouldn't this be a good way to go? Wouldn't this be a good martyred way to be like, I checked out the poor young thing died of cancer. It was like my get out of jail free card. It's a little more glamorous than dying of my own hand by my own devices. And so that only lasted a moment though, because what really happened is when they basically said there's nothing we can do. It also somehow turned on my, uh, my, uh, my little stubborn gene and my, you can't tell me what to do gene <laughs> and on the pilot light within me that said, I'm interested in living. And even though that doesn't look like it's a possibility, I know I had no illusions that I was going to fix this or come out of this. I wanted to know why a 19 getting ready to turn 20. So I was just shy of my 20th birthday. Um, and during all of this, I want to understand why I had that diagnosis. I wanted to understand how it was missed for so long. I wanted to understand how I got there and, and could be done about it. And so that's led me on now come to, by the time your listeners listen to this over a 32 year journey of understanding my own process, my own bi biography that led to my biology and my biology that continues to lead to my biography and how the two interplay so much together. I start to understand a lot of the impacts of my diet, my lifestyle, my family of origin, the trauma. It wouldn't be for many years before we'd learn about the impact of adverse childhood events on your immune function and on your nervous system function and how you respond to stress and stress resilience and PTSD patterns. It wouldn't be many years later before I'd understand that I had the BRCA gene. It wouldn't be until many years past that, that I understood that I have epigenetic single nucleotide polymorphisms that basically had it written in my DNA that this was going to come, come knocking at some point along the way. And that there were things that I could do as I learned accidentally along the way that could help me help myself and later helped me help others. So it's a very long story. 
it's still a story that continues. It, there's no beginning or ending, in my opinion. It just is. And I get to learn from it every day. And at this point in my career, I've directly had care of over 10,000 patients under my watch. And now I have the absolute privilege of, of training physicians globally. At this point, we have over 200 physicians who've either come through our training or are currently in it. In 28 countries, we have over 300 patient at 200 patient advocates with 100 more starting in the fall in all those countries as well. We are a movement. We are an awareness, different type of awareness campaign. And we are certain that we have can improve patient outcomes and patient experiences by bridging the best of standard of care with the best of alternative care into a truly integrated approach that patients shouldn't have to choose between the two. It should just be standard of care. I have to take a breath. That's an incredible story. I know. Sorry about that. I'll take one too. (laughs) Thank you you so much for sharing because I think, you know, I often say this when I'm talking to other physicians and other healing professionals on this podcast, that so much of our individual stories as healing professionals informs the work that we do in the world and the impact that we want to make and the reason I'm doing this podcast, right? It's all connected. And so I think it is so important for us to also share our stories in this way because it gives context, right? Explains why you are so incredibly enthusiastic, dedicated, fired up about doing this work and teaching others to do it too. And, you know, I really, I really appreciate you being really honest about, you know, your story and and what happened for you. You know, it's interesting because I'm sitting here listening to you and so many of the childhood things that you went through, I went through in my own way. The only thing that's different is that I wasn't sick all the time. I didn't have all of those sicknesses while I was growing up. And I also don't have any genetics. And so I'm just pointing that out because there's something here about our childhood, our experiences. There's so much more than only the epigenetics, the genetics, the toxins, et cetera. There's a lot more because I'm proof of that, right? I had a spontaneous mutation of some kind. Who knows why I got it? So both things can be true. And I think to your point, that is why integrative oncology, this integrative approach using the best of Western medicine, the best of indigenous ancient healing wisdom, putting those together, using food as medicine, right? Things that our ancestors have known is so incredibly powerful because you get the best of both worlds, right? And so I think that that's a really important thing to think about for all of us, for all our listeners as well. So thank you for sharing that. And so that kind of, you know, leads me to my next question is that, you know, before we jump into your perspective, let's talk about the Western allopathic perspective. You know, where do you believe that, you know, the current Western approach to oncology, to cancer treatment sort of misses the point or misses the mark for patients? Mm -hmm. This is such a yummy question. I don't think I've ever quite been asked this. I I feel like I talk about it organically, but I've never had someone just so thoughtfully ask it. So thank you for that opportunity. You know, a couple of things need to be defined here. First of all, the way we approach standard of care oncology today is based on the understanding of the work of somebody known as Dr. Theodore Bovary, which coined the concept in 2000, excuse me, 1914 of somatic mutation theory of cancer. By that, we mean that there is this gradual accumulation of assaults to our DNA that leads to these hiccups that then show cancer is a genetic disease, somatic mutation, genetic mutation. 
that is what we've built an entire industry on, entire all of our research, all of our treatments, the the lens in which we look at it, and even the way we have created a narrative in the 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 masses around this concept of this is something that is inherently bad that needs to be removed, that needs to be waged war on, that needs to be battled. In fact, we claimed war on cancer the same year I was born in 1971. Not doing great on that war front at this point. And so we've had it. And remember, like after 1971, we also are now passed two world wars, the Korean War. We're just on the heels of the Vietnam War. So our collective ethos is in this war mentality. So it made sense to use a narrative that the entire culture and community could get around and have a a unified experience around, but that doesn't maybe serve us as well today as we start to understand more and more. So number one, understand that we're still basing our standard of care treatments on a theory that started in 1914. And even through approaching that theory, it's not panned out as in a way as hopeful as we would like it to be. All right. That's number one. Number two, let me just clarify that how we learned that maybe the genetic only theory is not enough, right? It's not that it says it's not valid. It's just not maybe the starting point and it's not enough is that we actually have been able to associate less than 5% of cancers are actually truly genetically driven. Like like DNA at the chromatin level from the level of the nuclei within our cells driven. So an example of how we started to learn that decades ago and repeated over decades is something known as the nuclear transfer study. This is all about is when you, if this was truly a genetic disease, we would take a healthy cell and a cancer cell, and we would remove the hardware, the nuclei, the, the somatic container, right? The genetic information from that healthy cell, put it on the, put it on the side and replace it with the nuclei of the cancer cell. If this was a genetic issue, we would turn that healthy cell into a cancer cell if this was a genetic condition. The opposite is if we took that healthy nuclei and replace the nuclei in the cancer cell, we should, if this is a genetic issue, turn that cell back into a healthy cell. That doesn't happen ever again and again and again and again and again. So that might be one reason why we're maybe not quite as successful as we hope to be or would like to be or wish to be in the conventional oncology world today is because we're still, it's like, what's that saying? Like, you see everything as a nail and you're using a hammer, but you actually have a screw and you need a different tool. It's a very similar process that we're not asking the right questions and we're not approaching it from the right way. That's number one. Number two, the next, I believe, failure of our standard of care as a standalone approach is we've been coming at it since the early 50s, since the advent of chemotherapy. We've been coming at it from this. In fact, all of our research is based on this as well maximum tolerated dose, MTD. So our clinical trials are literally set up on, okay, a phase one clinical trial is, does this do anything? Like, or first, the first, the first one is safety. That's the first trial of phase one. Phase two is about how high can we go without killing you? That's phase two. So those first two phase one and two trials are literally just your guinea pig. And that's just a hard reality. And many people are fine donating their bodies to science before they're done but it is in fact what you're doing. You're a guinea pig, right? You're a human guinea pig. Phase three is when we start to say, okay, what is the maximum dose required to get the longest progressive free survival or the longest overall survival? So to give context to your listeners, um, there was a study that came out a couple of years ago that looked at the, la- the last 17 years of 
of pharmaceuticals that have come onto the market in the cancer world that are looking at, that have been you know, fast-tracked for whatever reason, they've come through their due diligence, they're now available in the cancer world. And when you put all of those things together in a bucket with all of those billions, if not trillions of dollars of research dollars, the best we've been able to do with those 96 drugs over the last 17 years is prolong overall survival by an average of 2.4 months. Let that just soak in. All of our energies are still looking down the genetic avenue, the one target and one treatment avenue. And yet the best we can really offer folks is 2.4 overall survival months. That's not good enough for me. That might be good enough for some of my colleagues. In fact, I have a lot of colleagues who are happy when their patients make it to that two and a half or three month mark out after their terminal, you know, after their treatment uh, is done and they're still alive. They're like, well, you made it, you made it to our, what we are, our goalpost was. I'm like, can we, can we push this goalpost a little mm-hmm. bit further? Yeah, absolutely. So there's that piece, right? And then that maximum tolerated dose approach. In essence, to explain this simply, right? You already, you're kind of nodding your head. You've, been, you've lived through this. Yes, I've lived through okay. it. Right, right? Mm-hmm. There's a, actually an emerging theory and one that I've utilized in my practice and in myself and in patients globally for a very long time that resonated with me just intuitively, but luckily the research is catching up to this. And it's known as the adaptive theory of cancer. So I would love in your show notes for you to share. There was a great interview with Dr. Peter Atia and Dr. Robert Gatenby, G-A-T-E-N-B-Y, mm-hmm. the discussion about this emerging field of adaptive theory of cancer and how he came to learn, how Dr. Gatenby began to learn about this and some of the big universities that are actually doing really meaningful trials on this and having successes. And a lot of my colleagues in the standard of care oncology space, even at big, big, you know, academic institutions are starting to embrace this adaptive approach. And the idea, and I'm going to really oversimplify it here, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. So forgive me. Okay, good deal. So when we think about what we're actually targeting, when we use things like chemo or radiation or surgery, or even targeted therapies, what we're targeting are fast replicating cells. That's, that's what those therapies address. So proliferative cells are what are targeted by those therapies. It happens, however, when you over-harvest those, when you over-kill those, when you over-napalm the field of those. Those are also known, those cells, by the way, are known as daughter cells. When you over-harvest those down below, what the research is suggesting is below 80%. So if you if you don't leave 20% in the garden, if you will, What happens is when you over-harvest and you push it down to less than 20% and you're going after, which is the maximum tolerated dose, every cell you can possibly get, you will wake up the mama bear. So the mother cells, these are the stem cells. These are the cells that are going to behave differently than those original daughter cells, and they're going to be harder to kill. So when you see someone who goes through treatment, maybe one of your listeners has had this experience, they might have done really nicely in their first line of therapy. They're like, wow, I had a really good, I I did great for about three months or six years or whatever. Then it came back with a vengeance and I only got maybe six months of a good response. And then after that, I got maybe three months of a good response. And then after that, the next line, I got no response and now I'm done. That is because each and every time you over harvest, over napalm, you make for more mutations, adaptations and more drug resistance. 
So the premise is that why don't we start with a less is more approach versus a maximum tolerated approach? And that's what I believe the future of integrative oncology really holds is that we can do less is more with better long-term response and maintenance. And that perhaps we need to shift our thinking from completely removing every last cell and remnant to pushing back just enough so that your own body can swoop in do the rest of the job for you. And so that's what's a big difference. So somatic mutation theory, maximum tolerated dose approach are the, the failures of standard of care oncology, in my opinion. And, and, and emergingly so, many more colleagues, even from very conventional environments of academia and research and clinical medicine that are, are seeing what I speak to as truth as they see this more and more in their patients. And this is where we're evolving in understanding that, wow, you know what, instead of using the 100% dose that showed up in this clinical trial, that that's what it was going to take to get your maximum tolerated dose to eradicate as many cells as possible, why don't we start with metronomic dosing, meaning 20% or less of the typical dose. And when you partner that with some other therapies that add some extra pressure to the system, such as being in a fasted state when you receive those medicines, whether it's radiation, whether it's chemotherapy or the targeted therapy, those cancer cells are more vulnerable and you can even target the stem cells simultaneously because you create in those metronomic environments also an abscopal immune reaction. So there's some really compelling studies, for instance, using metronomic cytoxin, even a single dose that can actually be more of an immune therapy than a cytotoxic therapy. So I get super excited that we can repurpose standard of care in a way that we've spent the last 100 years, 110 years learning all about the ways to really hardcore kill. And now we can change our, our narrative to how about I gently push back and let the rest of the body swoop up and do what it was divinely designed to do. Right. No, that's, I mean, that is a beautiful explanation of what's going on. Thank you for that. And what I was thinking about as you were saying that is, you know, in Ayurveda, there's so much about balance. And when you just overdo it with one mode, right, without balancing it in some way, right, with these other therapies, which is what, you know, in a very simplistic way is the way I'm looking at it and thinking about it, you know, and maybe explaining it to the listeners is that it's a balanced way of coming at a problem. Whatever problem we're talking about in the human body, mind, spirit, right? Any health issue, we're trying to come at it from a balanced perspective. And in the modern world, using these modern technologies of chemotherapy and surgery and radiation, okay, do them all. I did them all. I did all of them. But I also did all this other stuff, right? Which is hopefully changing those stem cells, as you're saying, right? And also the other thing, you know, I've been speaking about this all this month, you know, on this podcast is this idea that I've really come to after going the, through this for seven months is that everything that I was doing, my Ayurvedic lifestyle, all the practices, my ways of eating, the tools of yoga, those are actually protective. They are protective of our health. And so I really believe that those practices that I was already doing along with the integrative practices, supplements, food, you know, principles, sort of approaches of fasting, mimicking around chemotherapy, et cetera, et cetera. Those have all worked synergistically in balance with the Western medicine that I've received. 
And so I really appreciate that you are saying that because, you know, so many times people could, you know, pick up your book, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer, and think, oh, she's going to be just talking about all these things. And maybe I'm not going to do, you know, radiation and, and chemotherapy and surgery. And, you know, that's everyone, in, everyone has their individual choice. But I don't believe that that's what you're saying. You're saying there's a way to deal with both sides of the coin and integrate it. Right. I love it. And I love that you brought that because I think people assume like, oh, she's an naturopathic doctor. Oh, she wrote this. And you really dig in, which you've done and many others at this point. They're always surprised to find that I'm super pro standard of care. I just think standard of care can be done better. Right. Right. And that it shouldn't be mutually exclusive from these integrative approaches. Mm -hmm. And so that just reminded me of the third differential Mm -hmm. between what standard of care is and what integrative care is. Standard of care, its only interest, to be really blunt, is the tumor, tumor cell or the tumor pathway. That's the role. Like even the labs you run are not based on wellness creation or wellness maintenance. It's based on, you have enough fuel in the gas tank that we can hit you again hard to go after that tumor, that tumor cell or that tumor pathway. That is, it's a myopic approach. Whereas you mentioned the vitalistic medicines of Ayurveda, of of Chinese medicine, homeopathy, naturopathy, original osteopathy, anthroposophical medicines, these vitalistic systems thinking medical practices that should sadly never have been left out of the equation. But thanks to the good old Flexner report of 1909, it all got pushed to the wayside. And we're like, we have all the answers. And clearly a hundred and some years later, we're like, no, we don't. You got to bring back in the ancient wisdom that led to the understanding of some of the ways of our modern. I mean, Ayurveda is the grandmother of modern medicine. Exactly. We did our first surgeries in that. We did our first uh, pharmacology mm-hmm. in that. Mm-hmm. So it's like, no, 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 they, they, were, they were hip. They yeah, were they something. knew. <laughs> what I love about the vitalistic fields, you spoke to so beautifully about, hey, I might not have prevented cancer showing up because of the things I was doing with Ayurveda, et cetera, for all those years, but I certainly made my body more resilient and my terrain stronger to be able to take in, to be able to metabolize and to respond to all of those you know, toxic. There's no nice way around it. That's their job. It just is. I mean, never, no oncologist would argue on that with us. But to take that in, your body could deal with it and meet it in such a different way. And therefore, your outcomes and maybe even your ability to take in your therapies in and in a, you know, the time frame they wanted, maybe you didn't have to pause as much. Maybe you didn't have to have as, as many side effects with this. I mean, there's so many ways that even if you just look at it simply of supporting integrated medicine is well, well, well studied in the field of, of aromatherapy, touch for health, massage, yoga, music therapy, art therapy. Those are what are accepted integrative oncology practices today that should just be part of all of our lives, right? Forget about cancer or not. It should just be there. Like, duh, we spent, I mean, I just came from a conference where it was the Society of Integrative Oncology annual international conference. And, you know, there's a little bit of disappointment in me that why do we still keep funding these types of studies to say that, yeah, Ayurveda is helpful. Yes, acupuncture is helpful. Yes, massage, meditation, music therapy is helpful. When I know there's even more we can do above and beyond that. And you mentioned like to do with certain things like mistletoe, which we're going to talk about here or, or intermittent fasting or even therapeutic diets or diet restrictive, like amino acid restrictive diets and things like that, that can be instrumental in, in 
honing the response of standard of care, also more integrated, like really unique testing to understand what are the drivers and the triggers. So understanding viral drivers and toxin drivers and stress drivers and dietary lifestyle drivers, like evaluating much deeper than just, hey, we just want to make sure your white blood cells are high enough for us to give you another wallop of the chemo or the radiation. So to me, integrated medicine has not really hit its stride yet in the the big picture. There's there's 76 big institutions claiming to have integrative oncology departments, but they're what I call the low-hanging fruit or the fluffer butter, which is still really good fluffer butter. Like fluffer butter is still really good stuff, right? So we still want those therapies, but we certainly can be doing more. And that's where I get excited that I can shine the light on. In fact, I got to hop on a plane tomorrow to go to the World Congress of Integrative Oncology, where I get to present on the top therapies that I think are will be standard of care in the next decade. I just I just know it in my soul. The research is there. Even if it's not being done on US soil, it's there. I have thousands of patients who've experienced the positive outcomes from it, and I know we can do better. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. There have been many times in my life when I felt like I've had everything under control. Life was going really, really well. My career was on track. My relationships were healthy. I felt connected and joyful. And there have also been times when I've felt like everything is spinning out of control. Like this past year, which I would say has been one of the hardest years of my life. Navigating a breast cancer diagnosis has truly been one of the most challenging things I've ever been through. And while I've had my family and friends with me every step of the way, supporting me and loving me, I couldn't really share the depth of my fears and worries and anxiety and sadness and loneliness with them. That's why I started therapy again. So I could have someone on my healing team to help me sort through all of the deep emotions that I was feeling. For me, having a therapist to talk to was such an important part of my treatment. And this isn't a new experience for me. Therapy has helped me many times in my life when I've had challenges in my career, in my relationships, or with my health. That's why I'm so glad that BetterHelp, an online therapy platform, exists. BetterHelp makes it easy to find a therapist who meets your unique needs, whether you're experiencing anxiety, deep grief, sadness, or loneliness, or if you're in a stressful job or in a difficult relationship or navigating a really tough diagnosis. With over 30,000 licensed, accredited, and board-certified therapists, BetterHelp will quickly match you within just a few days with a therapist that meets your unique needs. Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Avanti today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Avanti. Let's talk about your book, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer, and this terrain 10 that you talk about, and this idea of the terrain. Maybe you could explain that to the listeners, because I think that really that's sort of the basis of all your work, and that's sort of where all of these theories, ideas come out of. So let's let's get into that. Sure, sure. So we just spoke to where standard of care really focuses on the tumor, the tumor cell, and the tumor pathway. What I do is I don't I don't treat cancer. I don't treat, that's just not what I do. I treat the terrain. 
And I treat people who happen to have cancer and I teach people on how to treat and support the train and how to treat people that have cancer. And I think that's another part of the equation that's missing is suddenly we become a diagnosis, right? Suddenly we are, oh, when people introduce themselves to me when I'm in forums, like platforms like this, and they're like, oh, I'm breast cancer stage four, or I'm pancreatic stage one. I'm like, Oh, contraire, mon frere, you are so much more than that. You know, tell me your name, tell me where you live, tell me what brings you joy, gratitude, and purpose. That's what I want to know first. The diagnosis honestly doesn't matter. The diagnosis is an expression of what's going on in your terrain. Right. Yeah. And I want to interject for a second because I was really, really very specific with my language on this podcast, with my family, in writing, anything. And it was my body received a diagnosis of cancer not me. Because I really, I really understood that it was really important for me to not define myself as cancer. And I never will. I actually won't even define myself as a survivor. You know, I'm, I'm a survivor of life. I mean, I'm going through life, you know? So you know, back to that idea of the war on like, why is it a battle, you know, and why am I a warrior? It's a human being and I'm doing the best I can. So I I so appreciate that because I think that that is such an important thing for all of us to remember. It doesn't matter if it's cancer or, you know, any illness, you are not your diagnosis. Really important to separate yourself from that. Thank you for reiterating that because it's, to me, that is very hard to bring someone's terrain back into balance when they only see themselves as a cancer diagnosis. Exactly. Right. Very hard. Your cells are listening. Yes. They're taking notes. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I love it. I love yeah. it. And so that's just it. So the terrain 10, again, I've got colleagues, my dear friend, Paul Anderson, he talks about the seven things. And my, my dear friend, you know, Tony Jimenez, he talks about the seven pillars. Like there's like seven, 10, whatever. It's like, don't get hung up on things, but here's what I know so far. And there may be like even Dr. Kelly Turner in her book, Radical Remission, she started out with nine factors that are those people who have these amazing spontaneous remissions that are not so spontaneous. And she's added a 10th to that. You know, she added exercise later on, but you know, so just, you know, don't get hung up on how many there are, but essence is what I'm hoping people will land on. So when I think about our, us, our body, our terrain, our inner garden, our ecosystem internally, and our ecosystem externally in which we're interacting with on a regular basis, I want to look at everything you're putting in, on, and around you. And that includes people, right? And that one always throws folks. And environments, and not just food or supplements or, or whatnot, but even our thoughts are adding fodder to the soil of our beings. So keeping that in context, think of your body as this big bucket, this big mitochondrial bucket. And so a lot of people, the only thing they remember about their mitochondria was that it's a, you know, the mighty mitochondria that makes energy, makes ATP. We've learned in the last 20 years or so that it's so much more than that. In fact, what we've really understood is we have always focused on, like we have cellular biologists, right? We actually need mitocologists would be my, I would love to see an emerging field in this because what we're really understanding now is, you know what? The cell is frankly just the the building for the mitochondria. Like really where we, so all these years we've looked at the cell and we kind of just pushed the mitochondria out of the way. I'm like, oh, focus here. We're now going, oh man, actually the mitochondria are where it's at. And the cell around it is just its swimming pool. It's just its condo, you know? And so what's really fascinating is what we're learning about the mitochondria is they are like, they've got like little antennas. They're taking in all the information, light, sound, energy, food, water, 
soil, organisms, toxins, pharmaceutical, all the things, they're taking that in, they're processing them, and they're re-signaling outwardly all the different things the body should be doing. They're the orca- they're orchestrated. They're the conductor of the orchestra of so much. So mitochondria are, yes, they make our energy. You know, that's very important, obviously, but they also are the responders to the environment and they're sounding the alarm, And but they're also helping us live. So our mitochondria are actually our fountain of youth. Your longevity is not outside of you. Don't go running off to seek the next biohacking treatment to keep you alive longer. Tend those little mitochondria and you'll live a really, really good, long, healthy life, right? It's your mitochondria are at the helm of your longevity. And specifically in the cancer world, your mitochondria are what oversee your body's ability to apoptose, to take out the garbage, to induce cell death when a cell has sort of worn out its welcome. Okay. When it's no longer serving you in the most positive way, that's what the mitochondria are in charge of. They're in charge of signaling cell death of those more fragile, broken down cells. The other interesting thing is that where we looked at genetics being the cause of cancer, we now understand that the genetics are only as strong and maintained as the health and wealth of our mitochondria. So I wanted to give that framework. This is an emerging theory. Actually, it wasn't so emerging. In 1921 is when Otto Warburg, there's a documentary coming out on this later this month. So I'm excited for your listeners to have a listen to that. But Ravenous gives a little history about it. The book Tripping Over the Truth gives a little bit of, of information about what I'm talking about here. But this is this theory of the metabolic theory of cancer, or the mitochondrial theory of cancer that made its way out into the world in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s until good old Watson and Crick came along and found the DNA helix. And then all of our energy went, put it all back into the genetic pool. And and we hoped, we hoped that the genome mapping and stuff would give us all the answers. And it just kind of fell a little short. But people like Dr. Thomas Seafried, people like Dr. Mina Bissell in the 1980s, they were dusting off a lot of this old information saying, you know, guys, it's not the gene, it's maybe the tumor environment, the microenvironment, the extracellular matrix. That's where Mina Bissell's work was. And then you have Dr. Seafried and others coming forward saying, actually, it's happening down at the Krebs cycle zone of the mitochondria, both the inter and around circulating the mitochondria. That's where there's the emerging research. Even Siddhartha Mukherjee, who wrote the book, The Emperor of All Maladies, who was very much Mr. Gene Theory, that was his jam, right? He literally went out to disprove the mitochondrial metabolic theory. And in doing so, kind of was like, well, I'll be damned. And is now switched full on on the coin and is now one of the best researchers in this field, right? So in the field of saying, you know what? There is something to this mitochondrial metabolic approach. And I'm not saying so... But mitochondria, your genetics will be more vulnerable. So genetics still have a place. They're just not the whole enchilada, you know? So I want to give that context. So now we understand these little signaling agents that are taking all the information in, everything, everything around you. So when you think about the drops in the bucket that goes into that, I've defined 10 that really stand out to me. Again, give or take, you might have better ideas on it, other whatever. One of them is epigenetics. Epigenetics is we now know that up 12 generations before us may have an impact on how we express and show up in the world today, right? But I also want people to understand that just because your grandmother, your great-grandmother, your great-great-grandmother, your great-great-great-great-grandmother all had cancer or diabetes or schizophrenia or whatever, doesn't mean you have to. Above epi, above the gene, means that it's something that's dynamic, that we have the power to do something about its expression. 
in the last 15 years or so, this has been a really powerful area of study and it really changed my practice and the way I think about this. In fact, this is what I love about Ayurveda. And you could speak to this so much more. Vikruti and Prikruti, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like those two concepts, you can change, like you can change that expression. Like here's what you were born with and here's what might show up. Yep. They were the original epigeneticist. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, you're right. I love that. So I, ooh, yeah. I love it. And in, in homeopathy, miasms speak to this. And in Chinese medicine, the energetic expressions speak to this. It's just, you know, we talk about kidney jing, kidney yang in the Chinese medicine world. This is, it's just epigenetics, right? So the expression is still up to us. So that is like, you can definitely see your familial propensities, but it's not set in stone and you are more powerful to deal with it than you've been led to believe. So that's number one drop in the bucket. Well, so let me just interject for one second, because a way to think about this, you know, if all of you are like, oh my gosh, okay, there's a lot here is to think about it like little switches, right? Our genes are switches. The epigenetic is what turns them on or off, right? So you may have a gene for something, it may never get turned on because of epigenetic. Exactly. Or you might have the gene for something and it does get turned on, right? You know, and then there's all kinds of other things, like in my case, you know, no genetic history, but there's something else that turned on, right? So that's the way to look at it is they're like these little switches are our genes or genetics and the epigenetics is like the little, the finger that turns it on and turns it off sort of thing. Yeah. Up and down. (laughs) Yeah. So sorry to introduct. No, that was, that was so perfect. Cause it is, it's, it's very visual. You need that. Cause it is like, like Sabraka is a really good example, right? So I have that gene, but guess what? I have the power to turn that switch on or off. So all as a Braca mutation is, is that my body has a harder time repairing my DNA damage. So I need to be mindful about my radiation exposure. So here's me getting on my soapbox for a moment. Am I allowed to throw F-bombs? I'll just like insinuate yeah, F-bombs. You can, it's fine. <laughs> okay, but it's effing crazy that we tell women with this gene to go and radiate their chest every six months for screening. If you want to turn that gene off to make it not able to repair its genetics, you expose it to extra, extra radiation. So the worst thing you could possibly do is to constantly mammogram your breasts if you have that gene, right? So those are some things we've learned. And so there's so much like PubMed, you just go into the rate, to the sensitivity of a BRCA mutation individual to radiation. So that's the piece here. What's really beautiful in my world though, is that doesn't necessarily mean don't ever do imaging with radiation. Don't ever do radiation treatment. I just know I have to work harder to prepare you for the radiation, to sensitize your cancer cells to the radiation and to protect your healthy cells as much as I possibly can. So examples of super high doses of melatonin, anywhere from 300 milligrams to a gram, two hours before imaging, as an example, or taken at that dose every day during your radiation treatment. So it basically acts like the Trojan horse to drive the radiation to the cancer cells and protect your healthy cells. That's what I'm talking about. There are still ways. It's not like, oh my God, freak out. I'm never going to do this. But also please, for the love of God, do not put your cell phone in your bra, in your bra. You know, if you have an opportunity to avoid your radiation, every time I get on an airplane, I take another, I take a gram of melatonin every time I'm on an airplane to protect my DNA. I have them do a pat down. I'm on an airplane almost every, every week. So I'm having them pat me down. I'm not going to walk through that. If I just walked through the, the thing a couple times a year, I wouldn't worry about it. But when it's a couple, when it's a couple times a month, that accumulates, right? And so these are the types of things I want your listeners to understand. Like, how do I mitigate? You're never going to get away from it all. We can't be boy in the bubble. Yeah, exactly. But that's the thing. Like, how do we work? How do I impose upon my switch? Right. That's all. Right. Yeah. The next one we have a lot of 
Yeah. And then the next thing we have a lot of beautiful, um, you know, like autonomy around is how we nourish ourselves. So metabolism. And so specifically, what are you fueling your body with? And so the vast majority of cancers, over 90%, depending on what researchers you're reading and following, over 90% of cancers are extremely glycolytic, meaning they are sugar hogs, plain and simple. So a strategy is when in doubt, just put everybody on carb restriction, insulin reducing diet. And for those who at the end of the day, which I could probably count on two hands, how many people didn't have a glycolytic response of cancer? At the end of the day, if you need to tweak it because they're not responding as well to that, you'll do that. You'll find out what other fuel sources are driving the show. So that's really important to recognize that most people are very, I mean, at this point, studies are showing that less than 5% of Americans, and this can be translated out globally, are metabolically healthy. So what that says to us is we have to work harder to overcome those deficits, to overcome those roadblocks. And so we all need to be really mindful about what we're putting in for fuel into our body. And so when people tell me, well, I eat great, and then I actually do a diet diary they don't realize they've just eaten three days of sugar at breakfast, right? And so if you're following the like American Dietetics Association with your Cheerios and your low-fat milk and your glass of orange juice and your piece of toast or piece of fruit, you've now eaten three days of sugar, right? Just at that one breakfast. And that's like, but that's what they all say to eat. That's the healthy diet. It isn't. We, you know, it's just, it just isn't. And so that's a big one. So we can really evaluate there on the nutritional side. I'm still befuddled by how many oncologists do not think diet has nothing to do with cancer when the very means in which we image most of our patients is looking for glucose uptake in your right. cancer cells. Right. Right. How, how can that be a disconnect, a <laughs> cognitive dissonance moment? Right. I don't understand it. I mean, right. You know, as, you, as they're serving you up your skittles on your way I to know. your chemotherapy, or, you know, like, yeah. Or as I was, you know, mentioning in another interview, you know, being told by a nurse practitioner of, you know, traditional nurse practitioner in an oncology practice to have Gatorade the night before my chemotherapy to make sure I was hydrated. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And you know, so first of all, like crazy well, on the floor, you had brominated fluorocarbons that are the dye <laughs> I of know. that are completely shut down thyroid. <laughs> it's like in charge of your immune system and not to mention all the sugar. Right. And it's fructose, corn syrup, sugar, not even sugar. Exactly. Yeah. And so just, you know, for the listeners, just, to, you know, why Dr. Nisha is talking about glycolytic pathways is that sugar feeds cancer cells. Cancer cells look for sugar. It's their preferred fuel that they're looking for. And then the other point that Dr. Nisha made is that our imaging actually looks for the areas in the body that light up, that have a lot of that sugar activity going on. And so there's a, you know, there's a complete disconnect here. We're looking for that on imaging, yet we're not talking about the fact that we need to really control the diet because that is what will feed the cancer cells. So there's a complete disconnect in how we look at things. So I just wanted to offer that, that insight so people understood what you were talking about. I love that. I'm so appreciative. And you know, it's interesting because there's also imaging, like we can do deuterium depleted imaging. We can do glutamine imaging. We can do choline imaging. So there are certain cancer types that will have a pro, like a preferred fuel source for things like glutamine, choline, even deuterium, uh, because deuterium depletion is actually a strategy in treating cancer, which is actually, it's all happening at that mitochondrial level. And so it's just fascinating again, that there are just some ways. And again, most of them, if 
starting out simply if you're new to integrative oncology, best thing that everybody could do is just get yourself on carb restriction, insulin restricting diet. That's, that's like super easy, right? Then if it's just not quite enough, then we can go a little more sophisticated and see if there's other fuel preferences for your cancer type. And then just accordingly, like add another layer. Maybe we have to bring in, this is why I'm such a proponent of intermittent fasting because it takes all the guesswork out. It's like, I'm just gonna starve everything for a little bit for a period of time. And the body does amazing. That's probably our best, cheapest, easiest strategy. Right. When in doubt. Right. Yeah. Intermittent fasting. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So next one, next is the train then. Third, third drop. These rest will kind of go a little faster because I think they're kind of self-evident. But the third one is it's no longer a matter of if we have toxicity, it's how bad is it? And how does it interact with the rest of our container, the rest of the mitochondrial bucket and with our epigenetics. So for instance, my husband can walk down the aisle in Home Depot and he loves the smell of diesel and has no issue. I walk down and I'm ready to throw up. I have a massive headache immediately. I'm really sick. I'm actually missing a SNP called the GSTP1. So my body does not know how to metabolize and detoxify toxins. So it backs up in my tissues and makes me very ill, right? My husband, on the other hand, he's like a rapid metabolizer. Like he could probably eat diesel for breakfast and blaze on through it. And so it's showing our biochemical individuality, but the toxins are real guys. We live on a very, very, very toxic planet. And even if it looks like a beautiful, pristine environment around you, that's your bottom dollar. You probably have something going on. So it's important to look at that because it can be a roadblock to a lot of your healing as well. If you're still drinking the, you know, if you, if you run your zip code, if you're living in the U S and you put your zip code into the ewg.org website, they have a water database. You can put your, if you're drinking city water, even if you're using your Brita filter or your fridge filter, you will see the number of toxicants that are in your drinking water that are not filtered out that you're drinking. And you'll see how many of those are actually known carcinogens. So in my own town, I live in Mexico now, but my town I lived in forever was Durango, Colorado, pristine, gorgeous. People come from all over the world to enjoy the great outdoors. Highest levels of mercury, highest levels of arsenic, highest levels of radon, highest levels of uranium, you know, in the ground, like this beautiful place is it's a hot spot. It's a, hot, a cancer hot spot. And our city drinking water has seven known carcinogens and 24 possible carcinogens. And so it's not enough to drink out of your Brita. Like you have to be thinking about what you're putting in on and around your body. And women, for instance, put an average of 50 different products on their body every single day. And our skin, our largest organ of elimination is just taking all that in. Most of those things are massively endocrine disrupting, which are throwing off our hormones, which is another one of the drops we're going to talk about here. But the point is, is you are toxic. If you get into, if you have any fragrance in your home, if you've got plugins, if you're burning can scented candles, if you're using dryer sheets, you are literally using known carcinogens that are more harmful than cigarette smoke. Mm -hmm. Oof. Right. You're using your Teflon coated cooking ware because it's easy to clean. You're giving yourself what's known as a persistent chemical that will kill you and your children and your children's children and your children's children because it stays in the DNA. It now goes into our DNA and is passed on epigenetically. And so these are the types of things that like you have to start to make those changes. You have to start to become an activist, an environmental activist, if you want to save yourself on this planet today. So toxins are big, ubiquitous everywhere everywhere. I won't even go into glyphosate, which is probably one of the biggest scourges to humankind we've ever dealt with. And it's hard to get away from guys. Very hard. You know, even organic, those, those crops don't read like, oh, this is an organic crop. So the spray isn't going to drift over onto me. It doesn't work that way. And ironically, this is what's really hard. You know, I know this, you're very passionate about Ayurveda, the very pulses that we've lived on for millennia in these traditional Indian communities and Ayurveda for 
tens of thousands of years that lived on, sustained on beans and rice, you know, pulses and, and rice are now what's actually killing their community. And it's not even about the carbs as much. It's about the pollution and the fact that it's now endemic that there is glyphosate on everything. And so now something that they never had problems with diabetes, they never had problems with, with breast cancer, or they never had problems with cancer in general, that's what's taking their lives. It's, it's catching up with us here in the West. And so glyphosate has completely changed their epigenetic expression. And the food that used to, they used to thrive on is now killing them. And so this is what's really hard. So until we become activists and change our food systems and our soil, we'll continue to die. Right. And that's really hard. And so it's hard. I can't repair someone's body if they're still eating, you know, if they're still feeding themselves and living in the soil in which they got sick. I can't help you repair that. Right. So environment is really big, the toxins. The next one, the microbiome, for crying out loud. I mean, I think even glyphosate branches nicely into that. It changes our microbiome. But even one dose of antibiotics or one colonoscopy prep will wipe out your microbiome and it can take a year or more to replenish. So people are doing routine antibiotics or routine, you know, things like that. It, it's tough. The body doesn't even respond, for instance, as well to chemotherapies or immune therapies when your microbiome is, is not working well. Our immune system in general doesn't work well when our microbiome isn't working well. So it's a key player. So is our immune system. We're coming out of this pandemic. And if you haven't thought about your immune system, I mean, we're all terribly deficient in vitamin D vitamin A, vitamin K. These are some of our fat soluble nutrients because we've terrified everybody from eating fat in the last 50 year experiment as well. And that's where you get your A, D, and K. And you get your vitamin D from the sun, from the UVB rays. And yet we cover up our skin with, with sunscreen, which are blocking UVB and only letting in UVA, which is radiation, right? And if it lands on a system that's highly oxidized and has a very high omega-6 ratio inside and low omega-3s, that's why you burn. It's not the sun's fault. It's your inner like solar panel fault of how you're nourishing your body. And so there's so many complexities here. And then we move into inflammation, circulation and oxygenation, hormonal modulation. These are the last two and they're biggies, stress and circadian rhythm. So stress response, circadian rhythm, and mental emotional well-being. Those are the 10 big drops that jump into your mitochondrial bucket. So when I have someone tell me, I did everything right. I did yoga. I ran every day. I ate well. When we start looking, you start to realize they dry clean. They dye their hair. They're going to the beauty salon and getting their nails done every two weeks. They're losing Teflon. They got fragrance things all over their house. They've got new furnishings that are beautiful, but are off-gassing, unbelievably toxic things. They're in a toxic relationship. They hate their job. Their children are a hot mess because they're being exposed to all these things. Yeah, they're not healthy, right? They don't even know that they're that frog placed in the cold pot of water and the heat slowly turned up and slowly boiling them. So what I get to do is I help people explore their terrain, explore their inner soil, find their blind spots as to what they might have been exposed to, what their mitochondria might have been taking in that allowed them the fragility to express a cancer diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, the only thing that I could keep thinking about when I was reading your book is how many parallels there were to Ayurveda. So many of the things that we teach in Ayurveda, as far as like a basis, I mean, the modern medicine, the science is all, you know, new. It's all the data that you've provided, right? But underneath, if you keep peeling away the layers of the onion, when you get down to it, 
there are these basic practices that if we could go back to, that would be a really good starting point. Now, the point is, is that we live in a toxic world, like you mentioned a few times. We're living in a toxic planet. And so again, you know, I always say you can't bubble wrap yourself and put yourself in a corner. You said you can't be the boy in the bubble. It's the same thing, right? Yeah, you yeah. can't, you yeah. can't insulate yourself from all those toxins if you're going to live you know, an engaged life with the world, with other people, all those kinds of things. And so, you know, let's go back to some of these practices, these very simple things that can help to even our terrain. And then you add on top of that, the science, the, the wisdom that Dr. Nisha is providing, right, of how to then, you know, let, let's up level those practices. <laughs> let's fine tune that, you know, the dietary practices we have in Ayurveda, you know, you know, you intermittent fast overnight, you don't eat. And then exactly, right. You just don't eat and you don't have to eat all day long either. Right. And you can fast once a week. That was part of our spiritual tradition. My mother did it every day for years and years and years, right. Every week for years and years. Right. If you look at the, the, the Western approach and some of the data that Dr. Nisha would say, it's like, yeah, you know what, doing an extended fast once a week, every two weeks, is going to help your cells regenerate. It's going to reset everything, right? So all of these things are are really, really intertwined, which is, I think, just fascinating and has been fascinating to me along the way. Now, I know we are all, like, we have a little bit more time. So I want to make sure that we switch over to talking about mistletoe therapy, because I think that this is, I know this is something you are very passionate about. You've written a whole book about it. We'll make sure that's all linked in the show notes for the listeners. But can you tell us about mistletoe therapy? Because a part, like a big part of your work is, you know, exploring new modalities and frontiers in cancer treatment and sort of any, and they're not even new as we're going to hear from you. I mean, mistletoe is something that's been used for years, but like putting it into that modern context. So tell us about mistletoe therapy for oncology. Sure. I love this. And thank you for the opportunity to, to speak about this um, yeah. this little plant that just so in, has endeared itself to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so a lot of people, like they don't even realize that they have co-evolved with this amazing creature because it is kind of a creature because it's a plant that behaves differently than the rest of the plant kingdom. So mistletoe itself, if you're out in nature, there's over 3000 species on the planet, but the ones that are most studied and and understood to have some anti-cancer effect and cancer mitigating and modulating effect come from the black forest region of, of Switzerland, Austria, Germany, France, and that kind of zone. There's a particular terroir soil, which should probably speak to some of this, that has shown to have certain lectin content certain glycosides, certain certain types of carbohydrates, certain types of viscotoxins that are anti-cancer that have this unique profile that create an immune response in the body. So think about when you look at these plants, when you look at them, there's this concept of a doctrine of signatures, which is when you look at mistletoe in a tree, it's like this big ball that stands out amongst the tree that looks like, guess what? A tumor. And so go figure when you have crazy old, crazy old Rudolf Steiner, good old Rudy back in the early 1900s, who was just a keen observer. He's the kind of father of the anthroposophical, philosophical realm. If anybody knows anything about permaculture or Waldorf education or sacred geometry or anthroposophical medicine, those all came from the philosophies of Rudolf Steiner. So there was a lot of, he's kind of, he's got some controversy as well, but he had some really interesting ideas and understandings. And it's, they've all really kind of proven themselves out. Um, 
in the centuries, you know, century past. But just to give context, historically, even since Druidic times, mistletoe as a whole plant extract was utilized in unique ways for spleen conditions, for conditions of of, neuro- of arthralgias, so pain patterns, migraines. It had a lot of utility as a whole plant extract. It also had a lot of mythicism, mysticism around it. So there were some ancient kind of stories about its use of giving somebody a sprig of mistletoe to be able to visit, to come back to life after, or to go into the underworld to speak to those loved ones passed on. Many of us understand mistletoe today around the holiday season, which is very interesting because it's all about, you know, that holiday season. Of course, remember, we've kind of layered some some spiritual practices on top of this, but the original Christmas thing was about solstice, about the coming back of the light, the darkest of the days moving back to the light. So there's even this this beautiful idea around mistletoe being the bringer of the light. So that's very interesting. And then the other thing, when I talked about how it behaves differently than other plants in nature, it roots in the dead of winter and it sprouts a few leaves in the summer. So it has an opposite effect. It never touches the ground ever. It grows inward instead of reaching to the sun, it grows inward and it's grown in trees by the scat, by the, it's grafted by a bird poop, right? So the birds eat the berries, they poop on a particular bird, a thrush that poops on the branches. And lo and behold, you've got this really like little like Dr. Seuss character living in trees that has this amazing medicine. So Dr. Rudolf Steiner noted, and he worked with an oncologist, um, Ita Wegman at the time from Switzerland. He noted, he says, looks like a doctrine of signatures. It looks like it would behave like looks like it would treat cancer and it looks like a cancer has grows out of rhythm out of sync with the rest of the body that's cancer right so the anthroposophical perspective of what is cancer is that's the body's loss of rhythm and this goes right back into ayurveda and the like a lot of the vitalistic medicines it's a disconnect of the world around them inside cellular level and outside in the world level and so there's this really powerful way that some of the studies around mistletoe. So by the way, it started being used as an extract where they would take the berries from the winter, the leaves from the summer, pulverize them, spin them in a torus. So if your listeners don't know that, they can go research that. So one way the water, the material, plant material is spinning in one direction. On the outside of that inner is another one spinning the other direction. Okay. And you're pouring, you're dripping in water to potent to, to turn, make this extract. Now there are some that are fermented and some that are not fermented and we won't get into the details of that. The book goes into the details, but ultimately we're potentizing something. So there's a little bit of an essence of woo woo and homeopathy to it, but it is actually, you're able to test this on things like NMR to see the potentization of these therapies. So yes, a lot of people will still use whole plant extract mistletoe in a variety of ways in medicine today, but that is not the medicine we're talking about here. We're talking about pharmaceutical grade extraction that is very, very, very well characterized that is used as an injection, sub-Q injection, or as an IV, or as an intraperitoneal, or even intravesicular, or even intratumoral application. That's the only way it works as a cancer agent. So I want people to hear that because people are like, well, I took a pill. I'm like, that's not going to work because your body will break down those lectins faster than you can have shake a stick at them. And so this therapy has been used that way since 1917. Mm-hmm. Isn't that amazing? Over a hundred years. Over a hundred years yeah. of this. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and what's amazing is it was like our original, that and Coley's toxins were our original immune therapies. And for millennia and for decades, well, not for millennia, for decades, we have negated the fact that the immune system had any role in cancer. And now it's a multi-billion dollar industry. And that's the, the soup du jour of standard of care oncology today are immune therapies. And yet those immune therapies, frankly, do not seem to have as big of an impact on my patients' lives as I see mistletoe to have. But I've also been able to make people's conventional immune therapies today work better when I integrate them with mistletoe. Less side effects, better robust responses, better robust remissions. And so I think that they play very well with others. And that's the other beauty about mistletoe. It's a therapy that was actually never meant to be a standalone therapy. It's always wanted friends. It has paired, you had cancer up until the last couple of, you know, couple of decades. If you had cancer in Europe, 85% of the time you would have had mistletoe offered as part of your therapy. And it goes well. It is not contraindicated in chemo, radiation, surgery, targeted drugs, immune drugs. You might have to be a little more finessing when you do it with immune drugs, but we, we train physicians because it's not a protocol. The patient guides the therapy based on their response at the injection site, based on other reactions. But simply put, immune, this isn't a powerful immunomodulating therapy, and it can enhance all of our standard of care therapies, lower the toxicities negate a lot of the pancytopenias, the lowering of the blood counts, lower the liver toxicity, lower angiogenesis, lower inflammation, stabilize blood sugar, stabilize hormonal modulation. And the biggest, the biggest thing we see in the literature and the research and the, what I've been told by my patients and all of my colleagues have been told is it is so powerful for the psyche. It is incredibly powerful for quality of life and for a sense of calmness and a sense of peace. And so it's a powerful therapy that I personally think, can't think of a single patient where I wouldn't use it, except for sometimes we are careful with certain forms and, and certain space occupying lesions. But I would encourage y'all to read the book. History is fascinating. The research is fascinating. I just came from a medical conference where there were three publications, one in pancreatic cancer, clinical trial that I was part of at Johns Hopkins that just completed safety studies, which is silly because we have thousands of safety studies globally, but we got to do it our way in the United States mm-hmm. first. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are just more and more coming down the pipeline here. So it's got some really wow. powerful data behind it. And I think it's a, a therapy that really ultimately plays well with everything. Yeah. It sounds like it doesn't have, there aren't that many contraindications or side effects or anything that it plays well. So, you know, we have a couple of minutes left, yeah. and I just want to go back to something you were talking about. You're getting on a plane tomorrow to, you know, present at the Congress for uh, Integrative Oncology about sort of some of the treatments that you see coming down the pipeline that are going to really be, should become standard of care. Can you just tell us about some of those? Because I think, again, you know, most of the people listening are either going through this themselves or they have a family member, a loved one, a colleague, a friend going through this. And I think it's really important vital information for people to have. So what are some of those therapies, Dr. Nasha? And some of them, like you've already noted, they're not new. Yeah. They just might be new to your listeners. So, you know, we mistletoe, very big. It's the most studied integrative oncology therapy out there. So it's really well characterized. Another one that's really well studied out there that I wish I saw it being utilized more in standard of care is high dose IV vitamin C, very powerful time and place. Another one that has a lot of studies and is used actually quite a lot in the oncology world. There's entire textbooks on this. There's thousands and thousands of white papers on this is hyperthermia. Okay. So partnering hyperthermia with various therapies, especially with radiation, by by the way, it also will sensitize the radiation. 
and it will change the perforate the perfusion and circulation of the microenvironment to protect the healthy cells. Very, very powerful therapy. Also induces fever, right? Which is also what our immune therapies of modern times and of ancient times were doing. They were creating this level of warmth, which is a cytokine response, which helps combat the cancer. Another really powerful therapy that is also utilized in a partnership is hyperbaric oxygen. Oxygen therapies in general, ozone, something known as EBU, which is kind of another extracorporeal oxygenation therapy. Those are really powerful. Molecular hydrogen, deuterium depletion. These are ways that we can actually oxygenate, release more oxygen in the tissues because cancer really thrives in a hypoxic, low oxygen environment. So these can help. And Another thing is we've learned that hyperbaric is very, very powerful to potentize radiation because a lot of our tumors are very, very hypoxic in nature and radiation cannot penetrate a hypoxic tumor. It's very difficult. So it's like a barrier. It's like a Wonder Woman bracelet. And so the hyperbarics on the same day as your radiation opens up, it's like it creates these little permeable pores that the radiation can then go right into. So we help it. It enhances the uptake of the radiation into the tumor. Very powerful, right? And it helps again, protect surrounding tissue. So again, why is this not standard of care? And then we get into the therapeutic diets that I've mentioned. So there's obviously there's therapeutic ketosis, which you can even get there in fasting. You can get there with high fat, low carb, you can get there with exogenous ketones. You can just get there with carb restriction, but there's also glutamine restricting, methionine restricting, choline restricting, arginine restricting. Again, time and place, and that's based on labs and tissue assays that help us know when, why, where. The other one that actually was talked about quite a lot at this conference I just came from is the use of psychedelics. We know a lot about them and their use of of helping people on the emotional, facing their mortality. There's been a ton of studies on that, but there's actually a lot of really cool, like one of my favorite studies I'll be speaking or combination of studies, there's many studies actually, is on bufotoxin, which is the medicine of the toad. That's an expressed compound from the toad that is is dried and then smoked and actually has some very definitive direct cytotoxic activity. This particular bufotoxin, I can't recall its Latin name right now, but it actually has a lot of studies in the cancer world. So there's really cool things coming out around that. And the other big one I just presented at another big oncology conference is photodynamic therapy and sonodynamic and even photobiomodulation. But photodynamic therapy has actually been an approved cancer treatment in the United States since the 1960s, and no one seems to have heard about it. All right. And so you give a photosensitizing agent. So there could be a pharmaceutical to do that. Curcumin does that. Green tea does that. You could do that orally. B2, vitamin B2 does that. You could actually give it orally. You can give it IV. You can even do it intratumorally. Let it sit for a little bit, percolate, let the cancer cells take that up. And then you put in the, the frequency of light that that particular photosensitizer absorbs and it creates this oxidative stress to directly lyse, to directly kill the cancer. Freaking amazing. And so how light literally can heal. And then here's the best part, like just to take it back to the mitochondria, our mitochondria are, that's what they take in. The cytochromes in the mitochondria are taking in different frequencies of light. That's their job. That's what's, so if you think about all of our kids today inside in front of blue screens all day long, it's no wonder that we're seeing cancers exploding in the, in the young today. That's the fastest growing rate of cancer today is in people under the age of 50, right? This used to be considered a disease of the aged. And so here we are with that. It's like, wow, if you're in the wrong light at the wrong time, we're not getting any real light at the right time. 
you're screwed. Your mitochondria are screwed. And so photodynamic therapy, especially when it's brought in with some of these other therapies I've talked about. And the other thing is the metronomics and the off-label drugs. There's so much happening in research in these areas. And there's so many of my colleagues already utilizing these therapies. There's just no funding to do the bench to the bedside. So while we're anecdotally seeing massive improvements and following the metrics on this, we're working on it from the bedside to the bench. And we're building out a lab that we're able to start to, in a research environment, a research department, that we're able to bring both of those together simultaneously. I know in my lifetime, my goal is that I will see these things become, at least a few of these things, become standard of care. They should not be considered the outliers, yeah. the fringe, the alternatives. They should just be. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think, I think that's the whole point of the work that you're doing with physicians. Can you just quickly tell us about that program and what's the name of it so that people can find another resource if they can, if they want to work with an integrative oncologist where they can go? Yeah. So the Metabolic Terrain Institute of Health, mtih.org is where you can find information. You can also go to our directory on there, which shows you the clinicians who've come through and are either not too busy, like they've got their names up there because they're still accepting new patients. We have quite a few who've come through, but they're slammed. I mean, they're booked out way in advance. So those who are on there are still typically taking new patients. So you'll see them. That training program, we're now in our eighth cohort. As wow. I mentioned, we have almost 200 fighters in 28 countries. I'm very Amazing. excited. And these folks are, they're brilliant. We've got people, we've got standard of care oncologists, we've got naturopathic oncologists, we've got medical doctors who just see a lot of people with cancer. We have nurse practitioners, PAs, basically anyone who's drawn, who's called to this work. You're able to order labs, order imaging and prescribe medications you are a candidate for this program. And so it's exploding. We don't even advertise and we just initiated, uh, start matriculated our largest cohort yet. So that's exciting to us and added a handful of more countries to our mix. The other program we offer is called the TAP, which is Terrain Advocate Program. And if you have a degree in nursing or nutrition or occupational therapy or counseling, like if you've got some type of a credential in the medical sciences, the medical environment, health environment, you're a candidate for this program, which is the same program in parallel, but but at a level that is become more like a medical assistant and a and a concierge interplay between the doctor and the patient. And you're really the boots on the ground going through and advocating for and with this patient and helping them understand the why of their terrain, how best to support their terrain. It's some of those very fundamentals that even Ayurveda really speaks to. And to be able to be that liaison and communication for the physician. And then we are also dropping in the latter part of 2023, a self-guided for the patients out there who just like, I'm curious, I love the book, I feel like I want a little bit more, but I don't have the credentials to take these other deeper dives. We have a self-care program that's being dropped for you later in the year. And so the, the website, mtih.org, has all the information about the programs, our next Ad patient advocacy uh, program starts in November. So we do the patient advocacy November and April of every year. And the physician is February and September of every year. So that's, that's us in a nutshell. Also watch what we're doing with our lab and our research institute, our data platform. Our, we launched, I'm launching a podcast on 1010, which is also the inaugural metabolic health day that we have dozens and dozens of partners from the big academic institutions to biotech companies, to testing companies, to industry supporting metabolic health. We are coming at it with a very unified front because of the percentage I talked about earlier, less than 5% of people having metabolic health. 
we know we have to do something because really the best treatment of cancer is prevention. And if we don't head off the metabolic derangements now, we're not going to be able to keep up with the numbers coming at us in the cancer world. And so we're really on a movement to educate, inspire, empower. And it's people like you, Avanti, who are also spreading the good word out there. And I'm really grateful for this opportunity to share with you and your listeners and welcome any feedback, any questions and any communication. Absolutely. We'll have everything linked in the show notes for all of you listening. And this feels, I mean, the work that you're doing is incredible. I am so grateful to you. I have been just awe, in awe of your work. I've been following you on Instagram. I'm looking at your website. I mean, reading your books. You are doing really, really, really important work. So, and, you know, someone who's just gone through this, thank you. Thank you. And thank you for being with us and helping us go on your journey with you. Avanti, this is huge to be so vulnerable allow us to witness what your process is because you also inspire others to do the same. So thank you. Thank you. I have one last question for you. That feels like a good place for us to end. It's a question I ask most of my guests. You know, if I offer up you the phrase to catalyze healing, what comes up for you? Wow. (laughs) I got goosebumps. Always tells me that's a big potent truth that you just spoke. To catalyze healing in myself and to invoke it at others is to show up Mm. in my highest vibration possible and to encourage others to do the same. Yeah. Dr. Nisha, thank you. Um, I couldn't have said that better. I feel the same. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to The Healing Catalyst. If you love what you heard, please hit follow and pass it along to a friend. And if you're feeling really inspired, please rate and review so that others can find this podcast more easily. To learn more, head to avantikumarsingh.com. And to connect with me directly, find me on Instagram at avantikumarsingh. I'll be back next week and hope that you will be too. Until then, remember, with the right catalyst, you have the power to activate your own healing because healing starts within.